Okay, you're being recorded. Um, thanks for coming. We have a few that couldn't be here tonight. I told you all beforehand that Caroline is one of those. She went back to uh, Statesville where we came from because we're taking a group to Israel in the end of February, and she's meeting with that group tonight to go over some details and logistic things about airports and all that kind of stuff. So she'll be back next week, of course, and others will as well. Um, let's have a word of prayer, and then I want to show you the other half of that film that I started with last week. Okay. Father, again, we thank You so very much for Your Word. It is tremendous comfort to us when we read Your Word and understand it and, and try to see what it is You want us to be and to, to do when we read the Scriptures. We oftentimes read the Bible and kind of check out our minds and don't really pay attention to it. But I pray that as we go into this Bible, read this uh, translation, that You would help us to really see the story of the Bible and what You... Uh, doing among, among humanity and how you want us to play a part in the, in the story which you're unfolding. Thank you for these folks and pray you bless them. Uh, Holy Spirit, illuminate their minds so they can hear and understand and apply these things to their lives. And we ask these, all of these things, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. Boy, guys, uh, I'm going to show you the other I'm going to show you the other half of a little film I showed you last week on the book of Genesis. By the way, this... Uh, this this video that I'm showing you guys, this is called the Bible Project. I know you all heard it before. It's called the Bible Project. All these videos are free. Go on the internet, pull up any that you have. They're tremendously well done. They're theologically accurate and very smooth put together, but they really help the average person understands the story of the Bible. They have over 142 videos so far. We're even doing word studies now. They take a word, like uh, the word chesed, which means uh, love in Hebrew, and they'll explain it in a way that the average person can understand. So they're doing a great, great job. Anyway, I will show you that half of the, of the book of Genesis, which we started last week, and we'll finish it uh, this week, okay? We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden, where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction, and it ends in the Tower of Babel, where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids, and he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person, 
but actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having sons, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're going to have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob... The younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who does that? Horrible stealing from your blind father. Yeah, then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him this special technicolor dream coat and his brothers because of this come to hate him so much so that they plan on killing him but they don't they instead just sell him as a slave down in egypt now while in egypt through this crazy series of events joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there and so later on the, the whole middle east falls into this food shortage and joseph's brothers they come down to egypt looking for food and then when they get there who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother. But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil. But God planned it for good, to save people's lives. Now these words, they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far. Humans keep choosing evil, and we are thinking they're, they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow, he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't know how exactly he's going to use his family to bring us back to the garden. Well, yeah, but this is just the first book, so that's what the rest of the Bible sets out to answer. There you go. That's a good, I think, good summary of the book of Genesis. By the way, I want to go back to something we talked about a little bit last week on page, I think it's page six. Um, something came up, and I, I wanted to make sure I clarified something. On page, uh, I'm part, sorry, page seven, top of the page, this is after Adam and Eve have sinned. Do you need a Bible? Okay. <laughs> and, uh, by the way, who, who doesn't have a Bible? Everybody got one now? We have it. Just hop in that box right there. No, hop in. Just get it. Hand it to you on the Thank you, Will. Thank you, Will. I got you covered, Ed. You know that. <laughs> but we talked about this last week, and I think there's a little bit of confusion about it. I want to clarify that. Where it says, at the top of uh, page 7, it says, Then he said to the woman, this is after God now cursing because of the sin that Adam and Eve committed. He says, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now that really is pretty clear. It's not that uh, hard to understand. But uh, I put a Hebrew word up on the board up there. Um, 
That is teshuk. And what it means is desire. And that's the word that we have here where it says, and you will desire to control your husband. That word desire, that's the Hebrew word. Now the reason I put it there was that same word shows up on the next page. Look over on page uh, 8. It's a, also in Hebrew text. Because what does that word mean? It only, it only appears two times in the Old Testament. And uh, so it's, it's, you've got to know what it means. And the way we learn the meaning of a word in the Bible is this. Keep in mind that every word in the Bible has a range of meaning. This word here has a range of meaning. Like, uh, give you an example. In our language, I can say, uh, He runs fast. The door is stuck fast. She's on a fast this week before Easter. Uh, she's a fast woman. <laughs> you see how the word fast can be used in a number of different ways? It depends on the context as to what it means. Well, that's true of this word as well. But in the context when she talks about she controls, desires to control her husband, what exactly does that mean? Well, look on page 8. In the first paragraph, again, this is dealing with Cain. And here's the word that she used of him. I showed it to you in a sec. Why are you so angry, the Lord said to Cain? I asked Cain, Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. That's the same word. Now, in this context, it's much easier to understand what the word means, right? What is what is sin wanting to do to a person? Destroy, control, control and destroy. Yeah, there's a negative connotation. But the control, you take that meaning, and that meaning applies back over on page 7, where it talks about the, the wife, she desires to uh, control her husband. Now, in a lot of translations, uh, it's a little more ambiguous. The NLT and the, actually the ESV explain it very, much more clearly than most translations do. But the idea is that, that because of the fall, because of the brokenness now in our hearts, the wife wants to challenge or take away the man's responsibility of leadership of the family. She wants to challenge that. That's what Eve is doing. And he in turn, rather than ruling or caring for his family in a loving way, now he wants to dominate. So that's how he, what was initially intended to be a blessing to us that the husband would be the head of the home and the wife would submit to that leadership because he's a loving leader, not a domineering, abusive person, but does it in a loving way, she happily submits to that. Well, because of the fall, that whole relationship has been destroyed. And that's why as we look now in our own time, where you have a divorce rate, divorce rate that's uh, over 50% now, uh, this is why. You know, she, because of sin, desires to take away from him what he should control, and if he wants to take the control he should have over her and dominate her and refuse her. So that's, that's what all goes wrong. Does that make sense to you? That's why I want to make sure you understood that, because that's very important to understand what that word means. It means to dominate control. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, correct that the, the headship of the man came before the fall. Oh, absolutely. And he yeah. got out of whack because right. of this. Because of this. Because of the, so the door to the New Testament talks about the way it should be. Exactly. Like loving them. Ephesians chapter 5, and I, I think Amisha's last. Ephesians chapter 5 begins by telling the wife to submit to the husband. But then as you read through chapter 5, what you discover, man has a huge responsibility to his wife. He's to love her to the extent that he is willing to die for her if necessary. He is also responsible to provide for her daily needs, food, clothing, housing, those things. 
And he's also responsible for her spiritual growth. Those are all the three things that are said in that, that uh, Paul told uh, the church in Ephesus. This is what a husband is to do, and this is what a wife is to do. And I think I mentioned last time I had a, a, a very women's live gal come in our office several years ago, and she's very angry. She and her husband were splitting up, and, and uh, her husband had come to see me first, and I explained this whole principle of you know the husband and the wife, and and when he went back and apparently mis miscommunicated it to her, and she was angry as you can imagine. So she came to see me, and I explained what I just explained to you. And I, but I, then I kind of told her a little parable. I said, and I'll tell you again, a man was created to find a cave with a bear in it, to drive out that bear and take over that cave. A woman was designed to find her security in the love of that strong man. Now here's a woman who's as liberal as you can imagine. Women's live the whole thing. She says, that's what I want. It's a man like that who can drive out a bear. It's just, we naturally understand that's the way the relationship ought to be. But because of this and sin, you know, we've destroyed that relationship in a terrible way. But anyway, I want to clarify that because I, I think we got a little confused last time. So it's really not that hard to, to, to uh, understand or interpret. It's just you've got to do that work study to make sure you understand how that word is being used. Okay, let's uh, continue on. You've got the whole book of Genesis to talk about tonight, so what are some things you saw that um, struck you that uh, had an impression on you or things you didn't understand or things that confused you? or What did you see there that, uh, that, that, that caught you? That struck you? One thing that has always <clears throat> bothered me is that, um, you know, with uh, Rachel and Leah... And the and the dad and their dad um, Laban, um, how he deceived you know Jacob multiple times. And number one, this is a cousin of Jacob's and a descendant of Abraham. Right. Now, I just have never, I just don't understand what his motivation of deceiving Laban. Laban, yeah, I don't understand what his motivation of deceiving was. Remember that Laban is not a Hebrew. He's not of the tribe of Israel. He is really an uh, um, Armenian, uh, not an Armenian, but an uh, Aramean. He's an Aramean. And he really doesn't fall under the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. He doesn't understand the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, of course, Abraham does. Isaac does. Um, uh, Laman is related to um, uh, Rebekah, you know, um, Isaac's wife. That's the relationship there. But he's really not under the... So he doesn't have an understanding. He, he buy, and I, I guess the way to express it, he'd be a non-believer. Gotcha, okay. Whereas the others are believers. They're under the Abrahamic covenant. They understand what their purpose is. At least they're supposed to. Uh, they don't live up to it. Because um, like Esau and, and, uh, I, Esau and uh, Jacob were both about 14, 15 years when Abraham died. Mm -hmm. That's their grandfather. And I'm certain... Come on in, guys. I'm certain that... Uh, Abraham would have explained to those boys what the Abrahamic covenant was all about and what their responsibilities were um, in that, but they didn't follow it. And that's what you saw in the film. Here you have this imperfect family. You know, God has a plan, and that is to bring mankind back into a right relationship with Him. And He has His plan, and all along the path, these people put in jeopardy. I mean, Abraham, you know, shoves Sarah towards... A, a pagan, and because he didn't want, to, he was afraid that the guy might kill him. Because that, you know, so he said, "Tell him you're my sister." There, he puts the Abrahamic covenant in jeopardy. Isaac does the same thing. 
And all the way down to the very end of the book of Genesis, mm -hmm. you find this imperfect family putting the, the uh, Abrahamic covenant in jeopardy all along the way. And the bottom line of that all, though, I think is, is just that, that verse, you know, you, like Joe says, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. You know, God has a plan, and God's working that plan out, even with the imperfect people, you know, being involved in it all. So, um, that's what surprises me about the book of Genesis. That's a good question. What are some other things you had? I was amused at every time Laban comes up that you can just see greed. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, at yeah. every point. From mm -hmm. the first time he met that family, you know, what did he see? Um, money. The, the money, yeah, the servant gave the money. So, man, he's, who is this guy with? He ran to meet the guy. Right. And then you notice, too, Rebecca was sort of with her son, how she was deceitful, and then right. he's deceived, so they've got their family. That's right. That's obviously the way their family works. Uh, later, it's a friend, um, by the way, on this Bible, if you look at the top of the page, you can see the range of verses there. So even though the chapters and verses are not in the text itself at the very top, you can see what chapter and range of verses you're in if you want to look something up, so you can still look things up. But there's a... a Towards the end, I think it's in, uh, let me find the page number for you. I thought he was Rebecca, I thought Laban was Rebecca's dad. What's that? Oh, Laban was Rebecca's dad. No, brother. Brother. Yeah. Uh, uh, wait a minute, don't get, get confused. Rebecca, Rachel, yeah, Rebecca's brother. Yeah, he's Rachel's not the. Huh? Rachel's dad. Rachel's dad. Yeah. yeah, he is Rachel's dad. So. But not Rebecca's. Right, right. That's oh, uh, he's Rachel's dad. You got me confused here now. Go down a generation there. Huh? Rebecca's Isaac's instead of Jacob's. What did I say? You're, you're down a generation. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, I, you know, as many times I read this, I get mixed up on these names all the time. Yeah, um, Rebecca would be one. Let's keep on. I'll, I'll be thinking about the way what we're talking. Well, there's a passage in here that talks about, trying to find exactly where, right in the middle of the story, almost in an odd place, you have a comment that says that, um, oh, where is that? Where, um, where Rebecca's um, maid, Deborah, dies, and it never talks about Rebecca dying, it never mentions her, her obituary, but it mentions this nurse, which is an indication she's, being, she's been punished. She's, she's not looked upon favorably because of what she did with her sons and Trying to you know trick uh, um, Isaac. Isaac, yeah, with he, he and Jacob kind of thing. Good question, though. I wonder what that reference was. Yeah, and, I, I remember that. Yeah, that's the first time Deborah shows up in the Bible. Right, y'all, help me find that. It's in, it's, it's in chapter that? thirty-five. That's what it's in chapter five. Let's see if we find that. Where that shows up. Oh yeah, right. Um, in the, on page 54, right in almost the middle of the page, it says, Soon after this, Rebecca's old nurse, Deborah, died. She was buried beneath the oak tree in the valley of below Bethel. Ever since, the tree has been called Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Mm. Now, that's an odd, odd thing. Just out of the blue, her death is mentioned. And it's seen, well, first of all, it divides up two sections here so you don't get them confused. There are two times that. Jacob is supposed to go to Bethel and erect a, an altar. Well, it seems like he does it twice, but no, that, I mean, he does it twice, not just one time. 
and you have this kind of phrase of that Deborah inserted to divide those two stories. But it's interesting to me that um, you know uh, Rebecca, her obituary is not mentioned. She's not mourned for, but Deborah is. You know, so Deborah was his faithful servant, but Rebecca's not mourned. And it's because of her deception with uh, you know, Jacob against her husband uh, Isaac. Interesting detail, isn't it? When you see things like that, one question you always ask yourself when you're, when you're really doing Bible, is ask yourself, why is that there? And if it weren't there, what would I be missing? It helps you understand the reason why God put it there. You know? So it's obviously there as, as a statement of a judgment against Rebecca. She's not being mourned. Like, uh, like Rachel will be mourned, but Rebecca was not. So she's, she's viewed as very negative because of what she did, the deception that she pulled off against her husband. What are some other things you see there that... Uh, if I got yeah. Kind of, you know, we, we talked about the Old Testament sets the story of the whole New Testament, yeah. the beginning and the end, but the, the land promised Abraham, I don't think it's ever been fulfilled completely. It was almost, it was expanded a lot during David. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's a whole other issue. That land comes into play See, God gives Abraham a covenant. He's going to make him, uh, uh, give him a huge family. They're going to have their own land. And they will be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And all through the rest of Scriptures, you see those things begin to fall into place. The land comes into play in the book of Joshua. That's when they finally gain the land. The first time they gain the land. Uh, but they lose the land. You have the exile in 722 for northern Kenyan and 586 for the southern Kenyan. So they lose the land. And when they come back, they never retain the land again. And uh, now this is where we get into some hermeneutics in terms of uh, interpretation of, of last things. That is, you know, 1948. Did 1948 mean anything when Israel was given the land of Israel? <laughs> People, before that, people usually thought, well, the church is what it's talking about. But after that happened, well, the Jews have a special homeland in Israel. And that, that's what I wonder anyway. I'll just cut to the bottom line. I believe that the, the land of promise is fulfilled in Jesus. I believe that's when the land promise is fulfilled. I believe Jesus is the land. Now, now in the Old Testament, it was a literal land. It was, it was a literal Israel. I'm going there next month. I've been there several times. There's a literal land called Israel. But I believe the fulfillment of that promise in the Abrahamic covenant really becomes fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, now, and that brings the whole issue of Israel politically. How do we, how do, we do that? Um, the UN gave Israel that land in 1948. It is their land. That, I don't think there's a dispute. Of, I don't think in my mind, there's no dispute about that. The Palestinians have no right and by the way, there's no such thing as a ballot Palestinian. That's a made-up name. Even Palestinians admit that. They're Arabs. They're not, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. But they use that name to try to make some kind of false claim to the land of Israel. But as far as the spiritual fulfillment of that promise that Abraham had covered, I think it really is found in Jesus. He's the, he's the final rest. You know, and, uh, I'm not prepared to explain it to you tonight because that's a in complicated and depth kind of discussion. But that's the way I see it. Now I'm pro-Israeli, I'm pro them having the land, all that, because it's on a political issue. But when you talk about the spiritual right to the land, keep in mind, when you read the Scriptures, and it talks about the people coming back to the land, 
It describes it in a certain way. How does it describe the people of Israel? What's a characteristic of the people of Israel that will, that will re, re, regain the land? They're faithful followers of Christ. If you go to Israel today, how many of you have been to Israel? What did you notice when you got to Israel? What did you notice about the, the Jewish people? Secular. Secular. Very secular. I had a Hebrew, um, I was taking a Hebrew in seminary course, and they invited a rabbi in to explain to us about the whole Jewish nation and all this, had all these questions. And so we said, uh, we asked that question, well, how religious are the people of Israel? He, uh, he wrote the name God on the overhead, those he had overhead object, wrote the name God on the overhead, and then he drew the Star of David over God. He said, that's what we're about, we're a political entity. It's not about religion. We're a political entity. And 90% of the people in Israel would be very secular. They, they admit to have very little connection with the, the um, temple or anything like that. There's a small minority that do, uh, but very, very few do. So it's, and so they don't really fit that description that you find in the Old Testament of the people who would take over the land, that promise. You know. So it's obviously filled in a different way. Good questions. <laughs> they prepare for that one. That's a good question. <laughs> um, with cultural situations today, uh, how, how, when, or why do cultural differences get so ingrained? Like Jewish circumcision, uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped by Shechem. Mm -hmm. Okay? But they were to go out and multiply, and so I have a hunch that there was a lot of sleeping around. Okay. Yeah, keep in mind, once again, this family, and that's what the whole book of Genesis is about, the second part is all about this family. They're very unfaithful. They're very broken and uh, um, distorted. They're, they're not an example of how to live the godly life, put it that way. They are a broken, uh, dysfunctional family. But in spite of all of that, God is going to fulfill His promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, things like the, the cultural <coughs> circumcision. Circumcision, every covenant that you find in the Bible is given a sign. The Noahic, no, uh, the Abraham, uh, the, um, uh, Noahic covenant was given the, Rome, the rainbow. The uh, Abrahamic covenant was given the circumcision. But by the way, why do you suppose it was circumcision? What an odd um, sign for a, for a covenant. Why do you suppose God chose that, uh, a mark on a man's body. <laughs> willingness. Huh? Man's willingness. Willingness? I think uh, what I'm trying to say is if he's willing to do this, then he's, I mean, he's setting his footsteps, trying to be what God wants. Well, he was eight days old when he did it. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. 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 his daddy is the one. Yes, who yeah. <laughs> Say that or again. the Greeks or the Romans? Wasn't the pie the, the physique? Didn't they um, the perfect body and all that? And they would the chariots and they. I, I've heard or read it somewhere like they would be the men would maybe in the nude to do yeah. this. So it would be very obvious. Yeah. Oh, well, Greeks. Yeah, they definitely went around half naked all the time. Yeah. I think here's what I think is the reason for our circumcision. Why God chose that particular sign for the Abrahamic covenant. 
I think when a man was circumcised, one of the things that he could not do was to intermarry with those who were not part of the covenant community outside the Hebrew faith. It was a sin to do that. In fact, when you talk about Shechem and all, you mentioned Shechem, um, the the terror there was that um, the Shechemites said, "Well, you know, we'll we'll do this thing if you just intermarry with us." That was Abraham and Isaac's worst nightmare to intermarry with non-believers. So this mark is on a man's body. So if he does intermarry or entertains the idea of, of marrying someone outside the Hebrew faith, he has a mark on his body to remind him, you're part of the covenant community. You can't do that. I think that's one of the reasons for that. Um, as, as, as I have thought about that many, many years, I, that's the best conclusion I've come to. Is It reminds him you're part of a covenant committed community and to... Go outside of that community is a violation of the Abrahamic covenant. You know. I was trying to remember. I, uh, a study Bible pointed out a reason for it, and I can't remember what it was, but I think that may very well have been it. The the mo, mo, most Hebrew scholars would agree with what I've said. That's yeah. kind of the conclusion. But in fact, I got that from uh, Bruce Walkie, probably the best Old Testament prop alive today. Um, very evangelical, but he's probably the best there is. Everybody acknowledges him as one of the best, and that's what he says. And so I, he was one of my professors, so I, I, I've never found anything to contradict that. In the New Testament, sign is baptism? Yeah, uh, well, you have Abraham covenant as the circumcision. The Mosaic covenant, what's the, what's the, what's the sign of the Mosaic covenant? Ten Commandments. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. Yeah, the Sabbath. Then you have the Davidic covenant. What's the sign of the Davidic covenant? I can't remember. Okay. He was, he was anointed, but I guess they all were. Yeah, they all know. Yeah. The, this, let's get to the, the new covenant. Is the cup. And that's why, you know, I, I'm Baptist. I'm not a Presbyterian. And part of the reason is because infant baptism, what we call pedo-baptism, they baptize because they believe that infant baptism is the equivalent of circumcision. That that's a sign of the covenant. You bring your child under the covenant by the baptism. So they make that. I'm using a passage out of Colossians, Colossians chapter two, something verses one, eleven, and twelve. I think it is. But I don't understand that. I cannot, for the life of me, see the connection there because the sign of the new covenant is the cup. We do the Lord's supper. That's the sign of the new covenant that we have in Christ. You know so. Every covenant has a sign. And I, and I say the Davidic covenant. I can't remember myself. What did he, anybody remember? Someone saying that the baptism is is similar to the circumcision. Is that what you're saying? That's what Presbyterians say. Yeah. Really? Okay. Right. That's, for, but, that's but just only, a symbolism. For, for infants only. Yeah. Yeah. I. You know, for us, we see baptism as a as a symbol or a sign of when you have died to yourself. Died. The old the old nature's died, and you're resurrected with a new nature. Mm -hmm. You know that's that's how we see it. You know, and uh, surprisingly, the the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of information about baptism. You know, we know Jesus did it, and we're commanded to do it. And John the Baptist baptized folks, and the, you know, just but you don't hear a lot of it and a lot of details. One of the frustrating things about baptism for me is trying to explain that when there's not a lot in there to to use. But what little bit we have, we know we're to be obedient to it. But I know it doesn't. I don't believe it, it is the same thing as circumcision by any means. Yeah. Yeah. 
so infant baptism is similar for baptism. We have believers' baptism. Right, that's what I, I yeah, I believe in, in believers' baptism, not just baptizing. I know the story out of the book of Genesis you have where the Shechemites, you know, uh, the sons of, of Jacob said, well, if you'll just be circumcised, you can be one of us. Here they took a significant sign, religious sign, and emptied it of, of all this theological significance and said, hey, you do this, you can be one of us. That's misuse of that and misunderstanding of what it means to be a covenant community. You know, be part of the Abrahamic, uh, Abrahamic covenant uh, community. Years ago during the Crusades, you've all heard about the Crusades, um, there was an incident, I don't remember the, where it was, it was in the Middle East, but uh, the Crusaders captured a large group of Arabs, Muslims, and um, they could either die or be baptized. Now that's a misuse of what baptism is all about. It's the same thing what you have with the Shechemites. You know, that was a misuse of that, that symbol, that sign, you know, kind of thing. Um, I just throw that in as an example. <laughs> is parent-child dedication similar to... Yeah, now see, that's what Jesus... Jesus was, the reason why we do dedication is because Jesus was dedicated in the temple. You know, we see that as an example of, of our desire to say, I'm dedicating my child to you, and, and I, yes, I will uphold this like I did this morning. I'll uphold these certain responsibilities and expectations, and, and we as a church will agree to do the same thing with that child, you know, to encourage them. That's what it doesn't, doesn't save the child. It just no, it has nothing to do with salvation. It's, yeah. it's just an intention of the hearts of the parents. I pledge to raise my child uh, in a biblical way, to expose it. Like what Jacob did not do with his children, like Dinah with the Shechemites again, she should never have gone into that city without a chaperone. Even today in the Middle East, women do not go anywhere without a chaperone. I've traveled the Middle East many, many times, even Saudi Arabia, and women do not go anywhere without a, a relative, a male relative with them. They cannot go anywhere without a male relative. And, uh, and what Jacob did not do in that situation, he had not imbued in his children the importance of being separated from the Arameans, being separated from the non-believing community. And so she went off and, you know, uh, she should have been at the begin with, but she should have been unchaperoned, and that's what happened. Of course, Jacob disobeyed the whole story, just kind of domino effects from, he should have been there to start with, he was supposed to go to Bethel, but he stopped in Shechem, uh, uh, and he should have been there. And then all that killing took place, and Rather than being, what's one of the things of the covenant? To be a blessing, right? Was Jacob and his family a blessing to the Shechemites? No. <laughs> they were curses to the Shechemites. So what he was supposed to be doing, he didn't do. You know, from, from start to finish kind of thing. What is the difference between the Catholicism when they baptize their babies with the oil anointing and it's baptism? Same, it's kind of the same thing the Presbyterians mean by it. The Presbyterians, Lutherans, uh, Methodists, all of what we call pedo-baptists. They baptize infants. And basically it comes from that idea that this is similar to circumcision. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, we, that's where, you know, Baptists, you know, when, during the Reformation, you know, Baptists pulled away from that because it was more than just that. It was so many abuses. You know, the Catholic Church was abusing so many things and so much scandalous back in, during the, before the Reformation. That's an interesting study itself, huh? There was a really good class here, and you were talking about the Jewish or Israel being a secular society. Right. 
you know, the Catholics were very secular. It had nothing to do with religion other than it was a tool that they used. Right, yeah. And to unite them. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've, I've got Catholic relatives who, you know, live like reprobates, and they see no, con they see no difficulty with that. You know, they, they, uh, the, what they do at church and what they do out in the world, they make no connection between the two things. And that's what happens when you take religion and empty it of its theological significance. Mm -hmm. It no longer has any meaning, you know, and, and then it does more damage than good, kind of thing. You know? I have a great aunt that goes to Mass like five times a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, as long as, she's like, as long as I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven. Yeah. And I'm like, Nope. <laughs> you know, a good example of that, and I hate to pick on him, and I don't really hate to, but I'm going to, Ted Kennedy, you know, the way he lived his life and the things he did, unashamedly, really, and, you know, and then before he died, he wrote a letter to the Pope asking for forgiveness. You know, well, he can't do you any good, pal. You, you know, you, you, you've got to confess your sin before, before Christ and accept Christ and His forgiveness. The Pope can't help you. So it gets all twisted and messed up along the way with, with the Catholic Church. Huh? Uh, getting back to the book question um, yep. that uh, I had talked, discussed with Victoria quite a bit was um, Judah. Um, when his sons kept dying when they married Tamara or right. Tamara and, um, and then he would not um, allow his youngest that once he got older like he sent her back home and for some reason Judah went to her town and she was out dressed as a prostitute I don't understand why she did that and deceived him and then two went when they had twins and I mean it pretty much I'm on page 61 I mean it just stops and it doesn't really have any um, yeah. explanation on that and then at the end of it when Jacob is blessing his, his boys, you know, Judah gets a pretty darn good blessing, and he, he well, Let's go back to, to what uh, Judah and his sons, two died and had mm -hmm. one left, and he didn't want to run the, run the risk of him dying as well. Now, why did those two boys die? Because they sinned. Mm -hmm. They were not being faithful to, this, this, to Tamar. They both died because they, they were spilling the seed or coitus interruptus, I think is what you call that. Um, and then um, when, a, when, a, when a brother dies, if you have a brother, he marries someone, and if you're a Jew in that time, your brother dies, he has not produced any children, then it is your responsibility called leveret marriage to marry your, your brother's wife. And whatever child is produced, the first the particular the male will be his child, not your child. And that's what this all is about. And that's a very, talk about cultural thing, that's a very strong cultural thing in the Old Testament with, with the Jewish people. Well, Jew didn't do, didn't do any of that and uh, had this, you know, uh, affair with uh, Tamar, not knowing who it was. And then it just, what it shows, it's kind of an interruption in the storyline, but it just shows you where they are, this corrupt family. Here's another example of that corruption within this family. And the fact that God, even through Judah, continues the promise of the Abrahamic covenant is not because they did it, but because God did it. It's all about God's faithfulness. Is there any symbolism that she had twins? Like, because she had two husbands of his? No, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, 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 for instance, those two guys, you don't hear much about them, just their names are mentioned in a genealogy, but other than 
I don't think they did anything of consequence that I can recall. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe just, you know, runs in the family. I don't know. <laughs> One way it got me was Wake is when Edward Key died, gave Barry Hood by the road and gave my case hood back to Key. Main chemical with a guy, Abraham Ball. Uh, which way are you talking about being married? To Rachel? Rachel? Wake it, yeah. yeah. Why? I mean, why did he take her back? Why did he take her back? Why did he just bury her on oh, the side of the road? Oh, why did he take her back? No, no why so didn't he? He just buried her on the side of the road. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he put Leah, Leah, Leah or Leah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that other than. Other than you need to bury them pretty soon. Huh? Other than you need to bury them. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not sure what the distance was from where they were to Mamre where that cave is. They went here, it got a little bit to him. Yeah. I don't know, I'm not, that's a good question. I'll try to. Yeah, I wasn't wondering about that, because everybody else went back to the cave. Yeah, even Joseph, when when the Israel left left Egypt, they yeah, took his bones, you know. Yeah. That was instructed he left with his family to take my bones back to the So you see that that the Abrahamic covenant, that promise is very strong within the psyche of the Hebrew people, even today. But especially here, still very strong in their psyche. You know, get back to the land and you know, uh, uh, Esau's a good example. He wants the blessing, he doesn't want the lifestyle. <laughs> you know, yeah, I wanted the but as far as you know, being the priest of the fam and all that, man, don't thank you, guy. So uh, they're very imperfect people, and you see that all the way through. You know. I wanted to go back to tomorrow, tomorrow because um, when I did a little research about it, the son Perez, he's the ancestor of David and Jesus. Oh, is that so, right? Yeah, David's line is from Tamar. Oh, okay. So, and that, um, that what you were talking about the um, the custom because she didn't have any sons, then who was going to take care of her? So that's why it was important to her that that she be cared for by a, a male, right? Because she was. Well, a that's male. why you people wonder why do, why would you have some like levered marriage or why do they have more than one wife? You got to remember that culture, a woman could not survive on her own. She couldn't go out and open up a store and, you know, she, she had to have a family relative either with her father or a husband to look after her and take care of her and to live in that society. You know, women, it's not like today. We can't project what we have today into that culture. It's very, very different. And then something else that I looked up about it, because I was kind of stumped. I was like, what is this? And then what page are you looking at, by the way? Um, the, the part where it says, you know, he, what page he said Oh, I'm on 61, back on 61, that she is more righteous than I am. And you think, well, who is she proposed as a prostitute? How is that? But when I looked it up, or they said that actually she saved Judah from doing wrong because it was her, his responsibility to make sure that, that she was cared for mm -hmm. based on that rule or whatever that they had. And he was, he was failing at that. So by her posing and being deceitful, she right. actually... Right. Saved him, and, and then, like I said, the whole yeah, thing I was that Perez came to that. Really and then, confused when when she when he said that she was more um, favorable. Uh, what was what, what was the word? It was, it, it was more, more righteous. More, more righteous. Yeah. And that's what I found. It said because she actually saved him from doing wrong. Wow. And, the labor. 
I'm sorry. Go ahead. The delivery of marriage is actually a command from God, isn't it, in Leviticus? Yeah, it's part of the of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, the uh, Mosaic covenant, or Mosaic yeah, Mosaic uh, Mosaic law. Um, and then something else that is kind of off, but all associated with this that I found, it said neither Isaac, Jacob, Judah, or Perez are recognized as the firstborn, and yet God's promises are carried through them. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, that, that uh, the scarlet string was quite. Um, you know, confusing, because like, like he, they wrapped around the baby, the first baby that came out, but that baby went back in, and another baby, and the other one came out. That was uh, especially with the scarlet, because the scarlet is the is a ribbon that they put around on their door, um, so they wouldn't get you know slaughtered, so the people wouldn't get slaughtered. The Passover time. The Passover, yeah. Well, it wasn't a thread; it was actually blood from a lamb put over the, the doorpost. Um, you know, I don't know. The, uh, those are good questions, and I'm not sure how to answer that. It's like the, the genealogy and all mm -hmm. of that. You know, I'm not sure how those guys plays in play into that. Because that came up on page 78, where it says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. And that's in reference that David's line is from. Judah, and it's from Perez, so it's from Tamar. Wow. Good find. What page you see that on? 71, 78. down about a um, little bit more than halfway. Tell me. 78. 78. 78. Oh, 78, sorry. 78, yeah. not 71, where it's talking about Judah. Judah. Right. Yeah, because that's what I was confused. Like, I mean, Judah and I did got, not do right, and he got a really good blessing. Yeah. I had also written something down in the house that said, leader of the, Judah, he's the leader of the tribes like a lion. His tribe produces a line of kings and the eternal king, the Messiah. Now keep in mind, that's not because Judah was good. Right. But that's where... It's because God's faithfulness in this family. He's determined it's through right. this family line that He's going to establish His kingdom through Christ. If you go to Matthew, the, the, the genealogy of the book of Matthew... If you notice in that genealogy, there's some bad characters in that genealogy. And you know, that ought to be encouraging to us. Yes. Even the Son of God had some background in his family weren't so good. <laughs> Which means God accepts even those who are sinful. We're never too far from his, his saving grace. You know, and that's what you see in the whole book of Genesis. It's about God fulfilling his promise in spite of their misbehavior, in spite of their failing, in spite of their weakness. He's going to fulfill his you know, you, you look at the um, uh, evil intentions that, that some had from time to time, and God even used evil intentions to make sure His His promise or His covenant or His promise was fulfilled. You know, it's um, encouraging, but then at the same time, it's like if if Jesus' own line struggled just as much as I do, if not more. You know, I mean. It sucks when we sin and we struggle and we have, you know, you know, just not Christ-like thoughts or actions and you beat yourself up over it. But then at the same time, you're like, well, they did the same thing, you know. I mean, what hope do we have when we're trying not to sin and, and, and our actions when Jesus' own people sinned? Yeah, but the thing is, Jesus is the solution. Mm-hmm. He's the one that forgives our sins. It's not about them. You know, they, they're just a bloodline. Mm -hmm. 
And they're, you know, we're, we're fallen just like they are. And fallen people do fallen things. But Christ was not fallen. Christ was perfect. And He came from that line. I think it all, to me, is kind of an indication that, you know, God's love um, can cover our sins. What Christ on the cross covers our sins in spite of what we've done. As long as we acknowledge that and admit that and, and turn to Him for salvation, avail ourselves of what He did on the cross, then we're forgiven in spite of how flawed we have been in the past. You know, and you see that in the family line of even Jesus, you know, flawed people. You know. Just look at King David like when, when he's writing about you know, his, his trespasses and how much he you know, regretted what he did. Yeah. You know, it just, in our own self, especially in the world that we live in today, you know, and, and Victoria and I were talking on the way here. I mean, they struggled just as much as we're struggling today. Everybody's like, oh, oh we absolutely. live in such a filthy world today. Yeah. But it's always been that way. <laughs> you know, I, I think people, when they read the Bible, they get the wrong idea about the characters in the Bible. That these are examples of how we're to live. No, they're not. <laughs> these are sometimes examples of how not to live. Right. But the fulfillment of it all is the grace that is found in Christ. You know, these are flawed people. I mean, you look at the, when you get to the kings, the book Kings, and we'll get that, of course, next semester. But when you read about the kings, they ain't no good kings. <laughs> they leave you wanting. You know, we keep this promise of a, of a perfect king. None of them, even David, a scoundrel, and so things he did. And that sets us up for the expectation of the final perfect King Jesus. You know, nobody's satisfied except Jesus, the needs of humanity. What we got me about Gulliver, he must be way Leo and get awake. I call it with five being awake because we know he was the favorite one. He got Leo and a deal he did not want to get into. Right, yeah. Yeah, they just see it all the way around. Yeah. One thing that kind of struck me is you look through all the how dysfunctional and deceitful and sinful this family is, all the way from Jacob, and then you come up with Joseph and say, how does he come out of that family? Because right. he's not one of them. Well, again, yeah. One thing that, that I'm not smart enough to come up with this, but I happen to go across the thing in the, in the study Bible that has a list of parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And there's a whole long list of them. That's what's called typology. Yeah. That's a whole system of theology. And Joseph is, is a type of Christ. Now those types, he's still not perfect, but in terms of type, he's kind of a precursor yeah. To the one who one day will come, and David was a type as well, and you know others were a type of Christ to give you a precursor, an idea of what this king's going to be like when he finally arrives. And that's why when Christ finally showed up, the expectation of the Jewish people was amazing. Of course, it all been twisted by that time. They're expecting a, a ruler, a, a warrior, a king who would fight and kill the Romans and set them free, and they, all that kind of stuff. Over time, they had misunderstood what this king was all about, and you can see how through time. He got more and more distorted until Jewish people were expecting something altogether that Jesus wasn't, which is why they rejected him. He wasn't what they were looking for. You know? I think when you're talking about the family, um, this primary seed that Jesus came from was not from the human line. It was a virgin birth right. through, the, through, the, Holy, through right. the Holy Spirit. 
Right. The, you know, as a theory, how does is, how is the fallenness of mankind transmit from one person to the next? You ever, what's that? What are you asking? Say What's the question? Uh, how does the sin nature get transferred from one person to the next? It's like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's seriously, I mean, like, like it goes generation to generation. It's like, I mean, like alcoholism. And I mean, you, you can see so many different lines of people that struggle with alcohol. And I, I mean, the, the, the percentage, a chance of the next line is also going to struggle with, if not more. Yeah, there's a guarantee that every generation, every person is going to be fallen. It's some, and we're all fallen in different ways. Now we're all fallen, and we need salvation from Christ. But the, the fall has affected every one of us in a different way. Some people are very lazy. Some people are workaholics. Some people are prone to alcohol. Some people are prone to uh, sexual promiscuity. We're all affected in some way or another, but we're all fallen in one way or the other. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it means we're, we're bad to a certain point. But how does that get transferred from one generation to the next? Well, the theory, theologically, is seminally, through the semen. It just comes through naturally, physically. You know, when, when your uh, fertilizer's an egg, there it is. It's, it's with you from the very beginning. That's, that's the theory that, that you maybe, have. Maybe through DNA they'll be able to prove all of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is never locate that one. Find, find the sinful nature and can delete yeah. it. Isn't that what they're looking for in the genetics of the world today? I mean, they're looking for the perfect child. Yeah. And they're trying to do it genetically. So. Yeah. yeah, I can say it. No, <laughs> you know, I, I believe that the fall affected everything, even the physical world, obviously. And I think even our DNA is damaged, so I don't think that they can let be able to repair it or anything like that. They'll never produce a perfect human being, not a sinless human being by any means. That's, you know, science is, I hope I can imagine someone. Like if you need perfect parents, if you wanted a perfect child, you Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah, right. as much as God said, if you disobey me, then, well, I mean, he didn't say it that way to Adam, but basically all mankind will, will suffer the same thing. It yeah. doesn't have to be passed down generationally. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it's God declared it to be so. Right, yeah. And it is so, yeah. We're affected by the fall. And, and again, when you read all these characters in the book of Genesis, yes, they're good and bad. You know, some of them fly like eagles, some of them run. And others just walk. <laughs> There's very variations of faithfulness and unfaithfulness all through that family. But the point of it is, God's plan, God's purpose is going to be fulfilled in spite of humanity. Even though they're imperfect, even though they make wrong choices, even though they fall from time to time, God's plan is not going to be thwarted. And that's the hope that we have. And that's, to me, the positive thing that comes out of the book of Genesis. I forgot where it is, but... There's a reason why God has left Christians in sin. And it says something. So as you do these works, you'll realize that these works come from me and not you. Do you know? Does anybody know where that verse is? But it, You're talking about where it says yeah. not to, it's not in you to will or to desire to do good? No. There was something. Good will I forgot. Good pleasure. 
vastly endorsing those verdicts. <laughs> but it was, it was actually one of the reasons why did God allow Christians, once they got saved, to continue in sin? And the answer is so that when you see the Holy Spirit working, you will know it's from God. And that is a rough paraphrase of it, but that's somewhere in the Bible. But look that up and bring it to us next week. I'd be curious yeah. to they never found somewhat for me, but I, I can't remember where anything like that be. Look that up and let us we'll talk about that next time. Before we wrap it up, I want to circle back to the story. I wanted your insight on yeah. when Jacob was headed back uh, and he was headed to meet up with Esau and he was he started fighting with this you know stranger. Um, I mean I know that's God or Jesus in the flesh back then. But I just want to know a little bit more about that story. Because this, um, I've always heard that story of Jacob wrestling with God. But um, it's a very short couple okay. of paragraphs. Yeah, it's a very it's odd. not much. And it's just kind of in there. And like, uh, he's waiting on Esau to get there. And this stranger shows up. And so I was writing about that. I was writing in Jordan. That's where that took place in the, the river Java, the Java River. And we're crossing this river, and I said to the guy, I said, what's the name of this river? Java. I said, stop, stop, stop. I want to see the river. But uh, there's all kinds of opinions about that. Um, some say, huh? What page? Yeah, what page? 50. Bottom 50. page. Page what? 50. 50, yeah. Um, yeah, um, the identity, even the even the, the the individual, the entity there wanted to know why you want on my name, you know that kind of thing. Um, we don't know. I, I I couldn't be I couldn't tell you certainly who that is. Most theologians say we don't know. Some will make us say, well, it's 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 a it's a pre-incarnate Jesus or or uh, just a man who may have been an angel or you know an angel, not a man but an angel uh, or God in some kind of uh, theophany. It's what you call when God appears on earth. You call that a theophany. But nobody knows for sure because there's not, there's not enough in this text to let us know what, what is going on there. Just that he did have this encounter with this, this person that um, taught him at that moment how to rely upon God. Before then, he was relying on himself. But that encounter left him with an awareness that I've got to rely upon God. You know. yeah. Who the individual was kind of interesting that that the angel appeared to Samson's parents and told them about him and the same thing they asked what his name was and yeah. they said why do you want to know my name yeah angels appear as, as messenger of God from you know, from the time to time the scriptures uh, and yeah we're very intrigued by that there is a passage in Hebrews that talks about we have guardian angels you know we all have guardian angels you know I'd like to meet mine someday <laughs> What's he up to? Sorry. I, I looked up something about that too because that's got me too. And it said that Jacob had deceived his blind father by claiming to be Esau and stole the blessing. And God asks him his name and blesses him because he admits who he is for real here. And that Jacob wanted a real blessing. That's why he, he wanted a blessing that was his own, not one that he stole. That's, what that's interesting. Yeah. And then the other thing that I found really interesting there was that he changes his name, right? He says right. he'll be named Israel. Right. But it doesn't change until later on. In I noticed that too, yeah. Whereas for Abraham, all the others, like your name is 
Abram, you'll be Abraham. It changed right away. And they said that um, when Abraham's name changed to Abraham, the new name used in the Bible is used consistently. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Jacob's is still used 45 times, and Israel is only used 23 times, and that's because he's not living up to his new name. He, and that's why he got his hip broken, because he was supposed to be dependent on God now, not self-dependent, and yet he still pretty much immediately, right after this, is making his own plans. And before, you know, again, when he goes to, um, to Bethel again, the second time he goes, he said, your name will now be called Israel. He was named Israel, but he wasn't called Israel. Right. Now he's going to be called Israel. So apparently, there's been enough change in his life that, that you know the name. Because in the in the Old Testament, names were not just uh, looked on your luggage or because it rhymed with your. It meant something. It, it meant something. Uh-huh. And so there was times in a person's life your name would be changed. Jesus changed Peter's name to. I mean, uh, uh, gosh, what was it before Peter? Uh, Simon. Tom, uh, what? Simon. Simon, yeah, to, to Peter, uh, changed his name because he's, you know, he was going to be different in time. So, so yeah, that's, well, that's what Jacob about. did not want to deceive his dad. It was Jacob's mom that wanted that told him to do this. It was not his idea in the first place. But he went along. With, but, uh, along. but Adam went along with Eve too. Yeah. So. <laughs> And you see who that guy is. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm gonna honestly think. I mean, how old was Jacob at this time? It didn't sound like he was much more than a teenager, or, you know, mid twenties. I mean, no, no, he was old. He was old at yeah. that time. Yeah, when he came back. To oh, when he came back. Yeah. Purchase, to see Esau. Yeah, he's older. Yeah. No, no, not when he came back oh, to see oh, Esau. Oh. At the beginning, when he deceived uh, Isaac. I thought when he like forties. No, I don't know. It was something like 40 and came back at age 60. He lied three or four yeah. times to his dad. He, he, was his, he didn't think up the scheme, but he certainly went around. He went a long way. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I read that he it wasn't like he didn't really want to do that. That's the way that I read it. Jacob. Yeah, he didn't really want to do that. He did want. Well, didn't. He didn't. No, he didn't. No. He, he, and the reason he didn't was he's afraid to be found out. Right. And he knew consequences of being found out, so he didn't want to do it. But, but Rebecca, you know, women. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you ride home with that. <laughs> You're on your own now, pal. She heard. you kept what he does to say, sin is transferred through the men. Mm-hmm. You know, I was hitting my wife trying to get her to say women. <laughs> I mean, that's a theory. That's a theory, you know, theologians. Well, the Bible says it that way. Right. You know, yeah. Well, our time is gone, I'm afraid. I appreciate the discussion. This is good. This, you know, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a unofficially part of a group called the Institute of Bible Reading, and that's what this comes from. The desire is to get the church reading the Bible. And I found there are three things that we needed to do to get people back engaged with the Bible. First of all, Produce a Bible they can actually read. That's why you have this translation now. And to remove all the things out of it that are distractions like numbers and footnotes and all that kind of stuff. But then to read large. Read large sections of the Bible at a time. So you see the picture, the whole flow of the event. And then to discuss it. They found in research that if you read something and then discuss it with others, you tend to learn it better that way. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. And you're... Whether you know it or not, you're benefiting greatly from this experience. <laughs> so uh, continue reading, okay? And we'll meet again next week. And-
Next we pick up uh, the book of Exodus. So we're moving to a different uh, genre, not genre, but different uh, mode of, of the people of Israel. Let's have a word for them. Father, I thank you so much for these men and women who really do take your word seriously. They desire to know what you've said, and most of all, they want to know how does it apply to their lives. And sometimes it can be confusing to us because we don't have all the answers we'd like to have, but I pray that we'll be faithful to try to determine what you have said, what you mean by what you said, and to live by what you said. Now bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all so much. Do you have uh, any change? Uh, I never paid you the $10. Oh, yeah, just look up there. Let me turn this thing off.